I'm going to shorten the reading for tonight. It's Psalm 22. And if you remember from last week, I said that the psalm kind of divides nicely into two parts. You have, um, I think, verse 1 through 21, you have the, the, the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then from 22, verse 22 to the end, you have the exaltation of Christ. Since tonight's subject is the derision of Christ, which is part of his humiliation, I think we'll just read the, um, the first half and then save the, exalt- the things of Christ's uh, glory uh, for uh, another sermon. But Psalm 22, I'm going to begin at the title. It is part of the inspired text. God's holy word. For the choir director upon Ajileth Hashashahar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out, they were delivered, and you they trusted, and they were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb, you made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening, a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would enable me, Lord Jesus Christ, as your servant, to preach the word, to proclaim it faithfully and accurately, both in my content, but even, Lord God, in my demeanor and my tone. Might it be pleasing and acceptable to you, my Lord and my Savior, and edifying to your people. Um, Lord God, receive glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my purpose has been, this is the um, 11th or 12th sermon, I think 19 sermons. I go round and round, but... This is our series on finding Christ in the Old Testament, uh, finding Christ in the Psalms, and we have actually done in in prior sermon series finding Christ in the Old Testament. It's something 
which to me, I think the Reformed faith does it particularly well, is they show that line of redemptive continuity from Genesis 3.16, which is the first proclamation of the gospel, uh, clear to the end of um, the book of Revelation. But what we're finding here in Psalm 22, again, if you're familiar with your Bible, we, um, even in these 21 verses, I think we read three prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus. There are at least five, six, seven prophecies in all of, in, in the entire psalm. So it's, um, this psalm is filled with prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ that do in fact come to pass in the New Testament. We're going to look tonight at verse um, 7 and 8. Last week we looked at the prophecy of Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then we're going to see um, uh, Christ being uh, mocked and sneered at in verses 7 and 8. And that likewise comes to pass when Christ is hanging on the cross. So, so basically, some of the lessons that we're learning here, and we've seen these before, but God is keen to repeat the lesson because we, we need it. The Bible essentially is a book of redemptive or salvific revelation. Um, nature teaches us that there is a God, that he is all-powerful, he's all-good, he's all-wise, that he is God and we are creaturely. This is a Romans 1. This is a Romans 2. This is Psalm 19, 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory. Psalm 139. Uh, in my mother's womb, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So natural revelation teaches us about God. Unless you're born again, you, you can't read the book of natural revelation rightly, but you can know some right things about God. But the book of uh, the Bible is a book of salvation. It shows us that God is exceedingly gracious, kind and loving, and especially merciful to evil and ungrateful people, to use the language of uh, Luke chapter 6. God is kind and gracious and loving to evil and ungrateful people like us. That's the Bible. And the kindness of, of God is bound up in the son of his love, Jesus Christ. The book is about God's promise that he won't leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery, to live in misery and then die and go to hell. God won't allow that. He has purposed from all eternity to save a people by and through his redeemer, Jesus. And so the whole book, not just Psalm 22, is about the two comings of Jesus. Sometimes we refer to it as Advent. And I, I, I hate, I don't mean to, I'm not speaking down to anyone. Sometimes we use a word like Advent and we don't even know what it means. Is that an Advent wreath or an Advent candle? Advent means coming. So it's the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first Advent. And so the Bible is about the first Advent or coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He, lived a perfect life, then dies, and then rises. And then the Bible also is about the second advent or the second coming of the Lord Jesus. The way that the Apostle John, I think in the book of Revelation, puts it, he calls it the parousia, the appearing, when Christ appears. That's the second advent. And unlike dispensationalism, I'm not picking on our dispensationalist brothers. Some of them are fabulous Christians. They kind of hold to a three comings of the Lord Jesus or three advents. The first coming, the secret coming for the rapture, and then the final coming for the final estate. We only hold that the Bible teaches two, 
the first coming of Christ to save his people and the second coming of Christ to, to gather in his people and to usher in the eternal estate. That's what the whole book is about. And we've mentioned this before. It's a pity to read the Bible or to study the Bible, to sit under the preaching of the Bible and never ever really understand the main subject. To treat it as an interesting book about interesting other things. But it fundamentally is a book about redemption in the Redeemer. The other thing that we see here, if you look at verse 1 of the book, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is made during the time of David, circa 1,000, 1,100, something like that. And these words come to pass a 1,000 years later. God puts the words of his dying Christ into the, the mouth and the pen of King David. He writes them. A 1,000 years later, Christ cries them from the cross. And then in verses 7 and 8, we have the, mock, the mockery by the enemies of Jesus Christ while Christ is dying on the cross a thousand years earlier, and it comes to pass. Not only do we learn here just principally the Bible is about Christ, we learn that the Bible is the word of God. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir, I'm preaching among Christian, Christian family, as it were. We believe these things. We need to be constantly reminded the Bible is true, the Bible is true, the Bible is true. We live in a day, what's the new thing, deconstruction, which is not anything fancy. It's just unbelief. It's, it's just a fancy way to try to express one's unbelief. And that's not even new. You have higher criticism is the same thing, which is very, very intelligent men trying to use their intellect to destroy people's trust in the Bible. This goes on constantly, that, that, that the devil is attacking our trust in God's word to make us sad on the way to to go home. But what we see as Bible believers, as Christ lovers, is that if God makes a promise a thousand years ago, in his timing, it comes to pass. And so the book is about Christ, the book is the word of God, and that this book is calling us to put our trust in the, the author of this book and to rest in that. And I don't know if it just as a pastoral application, Sometimes when you pray for something, let's say it's something big, something very, very big, which you or your parents or your wife or your husband, they don't have the capacity to, 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 to affect what you want. They can't do it. No man does. Sometimes when we pray, beloved, we kind of pray, uh, I, don't, I don't know, God, I don't even know if God could do this. We need to pray believing the God who wrote this book brings it all to pass. And beloved, I, I, I have been tempted to unbelief many times in my prayers thinking, you know what, this situation that I'm facing in my family is, is hopeless. Beloved, we have a God that calls into being everything from nothing. He can say a thousand years earlier, it's going to happen in a thousand years, and it happens. So that training to live upon the word of God, th this goes on until we go home. And now, the other thing that I want us to see just generally before we look at the derision of the Lord Jesus Christ is when we read this book, all of us in this room, I know everyone in this room, we're, we're believers. We are professors in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are believers in Christ. We believe. Faith is, is the most amazing gift um, that can be bestowed on men. 
Even Jesus says, blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your ears. You hear things that kings wanted to hear. This is in Matthew chapter 13. So sometimes we think, well, is faith really that big of a deal? When you read this book and you read, my God, my God, or they're sneering at Christ, um, you, you recoil in pain at the pain of Christ and, and you believe it for the simple reason that God has given you the ability. I want to read something from our secondary standards on the summary of what we can do, what abilities faith has. And I'm going to read it as a preface to what people without faith uh, are doing. Namely, people without faith in Jesus Christ are mocking Christ while he's dying on a cross. And the reason that we can understand their mockery, that we're reading this with any kind of comprehension, is because God the Holy Spirit has given us a spiritual gift. But what we're going to see is what people without the gift of faith are capable of doing even to the God-man. Our confession of faith says this in chapter 14. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. It is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also and by the administration of the sacraments, prayer, it is increased and strengthened. I mentioned that at the administration of the sacrament. Chapter 14, paragraph 2. Now this is interesting for us because we need to know that by faith we rejoice at the promises and we tremble at the threats. And when we come here, when it's explaining the hatred of Christ's enemies against Christ, uh, we, we actually do recoil. By this faith a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein and acts differently upon that which each particular passage therein contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. And and I will just say, without faith in Christ, it moves people to say and do things that we see them saying and doing surrounding Christ on the cross. Now, the particular verse verses that we're going to see is verses what um, seven and eight. Let me read those. Um, Christ says in verse six, "I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people." Here's the the text that I want us to consider. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, "Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver him. Let Him rescue him, because He delights in him." That passage comes to pass specifically in Matthew's gospel, but I would argue that it's alluded to in Luke's. And let me read that for us. Matthew 27, verse 41 and following. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him. The chief priests were mocking Christ on the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Now here's the quote from the psalm, verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
The Bible records the words of Christ on the cross and the Bible records the words of the enemies against Christ while he's on the cross verbatim. Luke 23 fleshes it out this way. When they came to the place called the Skull, that's Golgotha in Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments amongst themselves. And the people stood by looking on him. Even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So I've entitled this sermon, the, in my own sermon, The Derision of Christ. I know it says here, The Humiliation of Christ, The Crucifixion of Christ, which it is. And this is a subset or a subcategory of the abuse that Christ is receiving on the cross. We're looking at various elements of Christ's humiliation or abuse while on the cross. And this is the derision of Christ. And in the derision of Christ, we're seeing two things, as I alluded to earlier. We're seeing primarily the hatred of man against the God-man. And then we're looking at the love of the God-man, even upon such that hate him the the way that they're expressing their hatred. I I entitled last week's sermon, uh, The Cry of Dereliction. That's that, my God, my God. Dereliction is kind of a... It's a, it's a word that, that's not commonly used. It's not archaic. I would argue it's precise. It means a, a cry of lamentation for abandonment. And even when I use the term derisions, I was criticized many years ago by a fellow, and I tried to explain myself to the fellow. He says, well, you use, sometimes you use words that are too big. And I said, like, for instance, what? He said, well, justification and propitiation, to name two. And I, he, he, he was not being hypercritical. And what I said to this younger brother is this. God inspires those words. Like logitsamai and hagiatso and those kind of... He, he inspires those words. Lamentation, propitiation, righteousness, all of these things. And so if I were to take the vocabulary of the Bible and to, to dumb it down, I could do that. We could end up with a paraphrase, which there are paraphrases that right to say a third or a fourth grade level. But if we're going to get to be better students of the Bible, we should pull ourselves up in our vocabulary acquisition in order to be better students of the Bible. And so the Bible does use words like like dereliction. It does use words like uh, derision. This word in verse 7 that my NAS translates as sneer, even that's not a common word. But the underlying word, Hebrew word is lag. And that word is often translated to deride, which is a form of contemptuous mockery. And so even when we come here, even with the title, I don't want people to think, well, Pastor John's just in a time warp and he gets all these crazy titles from the crazy Puritans. Beloved, if we're to be good Bible students, we need to be um, better with our, with our vocabulary and um, in order to understand God's word. So the cry of dereliction is a precise word, but deride is a precise word. And in this particular context, um, it means 
contemptuous ridicule, contemptuous mockery. And so it's a form of verbal abuse. And I, I want to say something first about the various kinds of abuse that Christ took and that human beings can render to other human beings. We were, when I was a child, we would see, sing that little song that children sing, sticks and stones can break my bones, but worms can never hurt me. Physical abuse is real abuse. Um, there is a church that I like very much in uh, Michigan, and they're dealing with the physical abuse of wives, even the sexual abuse of women and children. And so I've been reading a lot of their articles on physical abuse. Sometimes people can make light of physical abuse. We ought not make light of physical abuse. Um, it's a species of a breach of the sixth commandment. And... Um, it tends to take away the life of, uh, of people. It's against the Bible. It's an expression of hatred of God and hatred of man. But just like physical blows are, are abuse, what, what, what we see here with mockery is um, mockery is a form of abuse. And it really does hurt. Um, if we put ourselves into the place, and, and I hope I mean it with propriety, of Christ... Dying on a cross, these people are trying to add to the already intensely, beyond intense sorrow of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're trying to add sorrow to sorrow. They're trying to hurt Jesus. When, when, you, when people mock another person, it's not by mistake. Sometimes people say, oh, oh, my bad. I didn't know. I just made a mistake. I just, oh no, when you mock someone, you mean it. It's, it's, you're doing it con- consciously. You're not saying, oh, you said you're the Messiah. You said you're the beloved son of God. You said you're the king of Israel. Just, just came out of your mouth. You didn't mean to say it. Mockery is with intent. So you, it, it, you, you, we mean to heap hatred and scorn and, 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 and anger. We mean to hurt the person that we are mocking, which what, is what mockery is. It's a form of verbal um, abuse. They're trying to hurt the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're trying to hurt him with their words. And just as I mentioned, I'm reading these series of articles about this church dealing with, um, with um, spousal abuse, physical. Verbal abuse is also real abuse, um, beloved. Um, Maybe when I was younger, I, I didn't tend to think so. Younger in the ministry, I didn't tend to think it was as bad as I think now, 22 years into the ministry. A verbal abuse can be absolutely brutal. Um, and so what we're looking at here are um, people trying to inflict pain upon the God-man. The Bible says this about the potential hurtfulness of our words. Proverbs 12 Verse 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. So the first thing that we see about the derision of Christ, it's the verbal abuse of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was called a, a drunkard, a friend of prostitutes. Christ was said that he was a, a tool of Satan, that he cast out demons by the power of Satan. Um, just 
filth upon filth upon filth was heaped upon him. And then here we have, at the very occasion of his death, uh, we have uh, the crowds mocking Jesus. The other thing about um, derision is not only is it verbal abuse, but it's gleeful uh, verbal abuse. When you mock someone, when you scorn someone, there's oftentimes associated with it a contemptuous laugh. Not a friendly laugh, not a happy laugh, but a wicked laugh. And what we have here in the derision of Christ is the people, the enemies of Christ that are deriding him, they're laughing at Christ, hanging, dying, crying on a cross. And that now they're heaping all forms of verbal abuse on him with this kind of, I, I hate to say it, it's satanic. It is, it, it, it is, the creature is gleeful at the suffering of the God-man. What, what creature would be supremely happy at the murder of the God-man? Satan. This is satanic. But this is the nature of man, apart from the regenerating and saving grace of God in Christ. This is the nature of man. They're gleeful at causing Christ sorrow at his time of greatest needs. Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. And he was a weeping prophet because he was sent to the people of God. And God told him, go preach to the people. And by the way, they're not going to listen to you. And by the way, your words are not going to be primarily for redemption or salvation. It's going to be judgment. I'm sending you as a form of judgment to these people. And they're going to hate you. And you make your face harder than their face. And Jeremiah wept because he loved the people. And they didn't love God. And they didn't love him. And this is what Jeremiah says about mockery or scorn. Jeremiah says this. I have become a laughing stock to all my people. They're mocking song all day long. That's a prophet of God. So the abusers of Jesus are in some way joyful or happy at causing Christ further sorrow. And the other thing that we learn about this kind of derision, this mockery, as I mentioned, it's a form of contempt. Contempt is when you look down at another human being as if they are beneath you, that you are the superior they are the inferior, they are the subordinate. And look at who's doing, who's having the contemptuous mockery. It's, it's, it's human beings, so created by the Lord Jesus, who is the second person of the Godhead. They're his creatures, treating Christ as if he's beneath them. And not only are they creatures, they're wicked creatures. They're wicked, vile, awful creatures who are treating the Lord of glory, who never did anything but good, they're treating Christ as if he's under their feet, that he's lower than them. That's man. That is man. I said it this morning, and I hope I didn't put too fine a point on it. When people say I don't like organized religion, I said it's because you're an autonomous rebel. I meant that. That is true. Sometimes I feel bad when I actually say the truth so pointed. Man is a rebel. Men, apart from God and Christ, they hate God. They have zero interest in submitting themselves to God. Man, if he could, would kill God, which he's trying to kill God and laughing at killing God. 
And they would make God under man. They would make God the, the servant and man the, the, the master. And that's what we see uh, here. And when I, when I looked at this, if you could transport yourself to the, to, to, the, um, to the occasion where Christ is naked, dying on a cross, and people are surrounding him, mocking him. I, I had a minister one time, Pastor Hobbs said, it, it, it was stunning to him that the angels didn't destroy every one of these people in an instant. But beloved, it's not so stunning that the angels didn't destroy, it's that God didn't destroy. God didn't destroy. If people did, if you had a child that was being crucified and a crowd was mocking your child as they died and you had the wherewithal, there wouldn't be one mocker alive. There, there would not be. Right? Right. It is, it, is, it, is, it, is a, it is an amazing thing that the holy angels could be restrained from destroying every one of these people. It's more amazing that God died for such people. So this is a form of attack. It's hateful words, insultful words, that kind of thing, uh, done against the very Lord of glory. And admittedly, when we look at a passage like this, this is written for our instruction. Everything in the Bible is for our instruction. And I admit that not everything receives, should receive the same amount of emphasis. I myself have taught that. But I, I just am going to express something which I, I do believe is biblical. I don't think we should sh- turn away from sad or hard lessons in the Bible. This is a hard lesson in the Bible. When we come to what the nature of man is apart from grace, which is essentially a devil, it is very hard. There are painful things. When we read them, there, there are painful things. There's a reason why people start diets and they never finish on a diet, because it's hard. It's very hard. And there's a reason why the fast food companies stay in business that they do, because we are prone to do that, which is easy. That's just the simple fact of it. Whatever is easiest, our flesh takes that, that line of, uh, of least resistance. We, we do our Bible study the same way. Oh, that's a painful lesson. Oh, I don't know. That, that hurts. I, I think I'll save that for another day. Beloved, I wouldn't do that. Is my belief, and I just shared this with a brother going through a difficult time, that um, some of the greatest lessons that we learn in Christ Jesus are found in our greatest times of pain. This is a James chapter 1, 1 through 12. I, I think we learn more of Christ in the harder lessons and even in the sadder lessons. So please don't shy away from this, but it is, it's written here for our instruction. It's a sad thing. We have the words of the suffering Christ, as I mentioned, verse 1. The words of the, the beloved son while he dies. Then we have the words of those causing the suffering of Jesus Christ. These are the words that hate the beloved son even as he is uh, dying. I want to spend a little bit more time, maybe five more minutes in the remaining part of this sermon, looking at the nature of natural man. 
The words of these mockers represent the words of natural man. Um, when I say people are not good, I'm not denying that my Hindu, my Hindu family, if you go to their house, one of those children, now those grown children who are getting ready to go to college, they'll jump out of their bed. They will give you their bed. Um, uh, people will cook and clean and they will do for you all day long. And so you say, well, is that a wicked thing? No, it's a very kind thing. But when I say people are not good, I mean before God, not before us. How, how are natural men before the God of heaven and earth? What, what do they think about the God of heaven and earth? And I know what the Bible says, and I know what my experience proves. They hate the God of heaven and earth. And, and they would kill the God of heaven and earth if they could. They, they were rejoicing at the death of the God-man on the cross. This is man. This is man. And so when we look at the nature of man, people talk about free will. Uh, Presbyterians use a phrase called free agency. Uh, maybe that's another a time for a Bible study. If our coming to the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately was contingent upon a so-called free will, us moving towards God first, no one would come to Christ. No one would be saved. Because everybody, apart from saving grace in God, is this. They hate God. People that hate God in Christ don't love God in Christ. They don't believe in him. They don't come to him. They don't live for him. But it's his love for us that overwhelms our hatred for him. So this is a testimony of why we need saving sovereign grace. Because man left to himself is a God-hater. That's what this is. Man left to himself is a God-hater. They hate the Father, they hate the Son, and they hate the Holy Spirit. The other thing that we see with mockery is it's verbal. Now, you know this as well as I do, if you're acquainted with your own life. Can we sometimes fool ourselves as to the nature of our heart, the goodness of our heart? When I was in college, I would tell the Christian students when they would say, you need to be a Christian, I would say, but I'm already a good person. I'm a good person. I'm not Hitler. I like to drink beer every once in a while, but I'm a good person. See, I do good things. I go help out poor people every once in a while. I'm a good person. Beloved, we can fool ourselves. The heart is exceedingly prone to self-deception. And we can dress up our badness uh, for a while, but God knows the heart. And the other thing that the Bible teaches us is what's ever in the heart is going to come out of our mouth. And whatever comes out of our mouth will indicate the true nature of our heart. And when we look at these men heaping words of hatred upon Jesus Christ, we can conclude that their, their heart is bad before God. That they are heart, they are, in their hearts they hate God because they express hateful words against Christ. And I'm just going to say this as an application. I'm not going to read the text. Matthew chapter 12 and then uh, James chapter 3. But Matthew 12. I was raised using the words Jesus Christ as a curse. I've mentioned this before. It's very common in the north. It's not common in the south. I would say Jesus Christ as a cursed word. And I had a, a phone call last week. And for the first five minutes, I heard Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And I've not heard that for years as a curse word. And I hate that. I hate that. It's expressive of hatred against the Christ that died for my sins and the Christ that I live for. 
whatever is in man's heart, it's going to come out. And it indicates the nature of the person, uh, in this case, before God. And so as you listen to people's words about God, about Christ, about the Bible, about the church, they're going to show you what they are. And look at the... And the other thing we see not only is the nature of man, half beast and half devil, what kind of men and women are surrounding the cross mocking Jesus Christ? What kind? All kinds. You see... Our country right now is trying to stir up, I would argue, race wars. Our country is trying to stir up um, class war, class envy, blacks hating whites, whites hating blacks, all that kind of thing. You hear it constantly, those fires are being stoked. Then you also hear stoking the poor against the rich, which is funny because it's done by the rich. It, it's, um, they're trying to divide classes of people. And then in, in the context of stoking the hatred of the, the rich by the poor, the saying goes like this, well, poor people are good and rich people are bad. Beloved, I want you to see something at the cross. Who does the mocking? Jews do mocking of Christ. Gentiles do mocking. The people mock Jesus. Um, the priests mock Jesus. The soldiers mock Jesus. The civ- civilians mock Jesus. Everyone mocks Jesus. High and low, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, apart from God's saving grace, every kind of person is a God-hater. Rich people hate God apart from the saving grace. White folks, black folks, yellow folks, brown folks, poor folks, free folks, slave folks. Apart from the saving God in Christ, every human being hates God. And Christ says what on the cross here? With all of this, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Beloved, when I, I, I come here, I mentioned it earlier. Paul remembers himself. Paul said, I hated Christ. I hated his church. But then he had mercy on me. And he sent me out to tell everyone that Christ saves wicked sinners like me. That's the Christian faith, beloved. We're all here. Apart from grace, grace, we're all these people. But this is what makes amazing grace so amazing. This is why I'll never commingle our works with Christ's work. If it wasn't all Christ, all God, not a one of us would be saved. And this is the love of God, the mercy of God, and it overwhelms and changes man's hatred of God and turns us into Christ lovers. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.